Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Study shows China is on track to overtake Japan as the world's biggest auto exporter by the end of the year. China unveils a three-year action plan to commercialize 90% of its counties. Argentina is facing mounting pressure to devalue its currency after shock primary election results. And the United Nations warns that over one million people have fled Sudan as a dire humanitarian crisis unfolds. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. China is on track to overtake Japan as the world's biggest auto exporter by the end of the year, according to a report by Moody's Analytics. The gap between the two narrowed to about 70,000 vehicles per month during the quarter ending in June, down almost 100,000 from last year. The report says demand for electric vehicles drove China's car exports beyond pre-pandemic levels. In the first half of this year, the country's EV exports doubled the number recorded a year ago. Japan has held the title of the world's biggest car exporter since 2019. So, for more on this, let's have Professor Chu Chang, Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Thank you, Professor. How do you perceive Moody's prediction that China is poised to surpass Japan as the world's largest car exporter by the end of this year? How likely will that happen, based on your observation? Well, I think that's very, very possible to be、uh, of effect、uh, by the end of this year or early next year.、Uh, we have to understand that China has a very long trajectory at research producing、uh, the electronic vehicles. And、uh, China has built the whole value chain, the whole supply chain around that, because the、uh, EV industry is a very, very complicated,、uh, systematic in,、uh, industry. You need all parts to come together.、Uh, if you lack of either、uh, of the、uh, parts in this、uh, supply chain, and you will fail to build the cars. Now China has to build like 2.5 million cars a year,、uh, EV、uh, EV vehicles, of course.、Uh, Japan is like 2 million EV a year. And、uh, I think Japan is not very likely to, you know, substantially increase the production numbers in a very short time. So、um, they still need to spend a lot of time and energy and rebuild the supply chain to catch up with China. So I think that's going to happen very soon. Could you elaborate on the key drivers behind this rapid expansion of China, as China's auto exports achieving this remarkable growth? Oh, I think everybody misunderstands. This is not a rapid expansion. This is actually a long prepared battle.、Mm-hmm. You know,、uh, since when China has prepared to build AV? A lot of people probably don't believe it. It's in 1998.、Uh, you know, China has its own Oppenheimer,、uh, the father of Chinese nuclear energy,、uh, Mr. Chen Shui-sen. By the end of the 1998, Mr. Chen Shui-sen, already in senior age, wrote a letter to the central government. That is, he said. Um, you know, we've been falling so behind,、uh, you know, developed nations、uh, in gasoline vehicles because there's so many patents, so many technologies. We don't have it.、So、we probably need to go through directly into EV vehicles just so we can overpass lots of patent issues. And about early of 2000, the minister Wang Gang, the minister of you know, the Ministry of the,、uh, the Industry and uh, you know uh, Technology and Science, and、uh, he also mentioned that we have been locked down in so many patents we cannot go through. So we might just go to the easy vehicles, and by the year of 2010 or 2012, I don't remember. I've just been working as a consultant with the Chinese Automobile Research Institute, and we've been working with Baiyik, Beijing Automobile Industry, to see their first batch of the you know EV working as the taxi cars in Beijing. That car only can run like 100 or most 200 miles per every charge. That's a very very low quality. So China has walked very long miles before they can reach such a, such a、uh, level of technology and production. Just take a look. We have BYD. We have the Ninja Times of the battery. We have all kinds of the car parts. That's not going to build in one day. We took already 
30 years to come to this height. So this is not a rapid expansion. It's just mm-hmm. when everything is prepared, we see the explosion. Mm-hmm. As you said, for China, it's a process from quantitative change to qualitative change. And also, you earlier mentioned about China's new energy vehicle development. In the first half of this year, China's new energy vehicle exports have doubled compared to last year. So how did China's new energy vehicles gain such a momentum? Well, I think for that, it has two sides because it takes two to tangle. One is the uh, demand side. That's the most important reason. Everybody sees uh, that uh, through all these years, uh, especially we have the geopolitical conflict, we see the gasoline price, the oil prices just skyrocketed to the historical high. Everything is so expensive. People wouldn't want to spend you know, extra dollars on their gasoline. And also, green development has become a very important concept in everybody's mind. People want to run clean if people want to drive and transport clean so that created lots of the demand for the ev that's very different from uh, the past and secondly we need the supply side supply side is as i mentioned china spent more than 20 years or 30 years to build the supply chain complicated and a very comprehensive supply chain we have the efficient batteries remember our first batch can only run 100 kilometers per charge but now maximum we can run 1000 miles per charge and also, um, we have a very light, a lightweighted chassis. We have very complicated electronic, uh, you know, the ECU parts uh, in the vehicle made, made in China. And a very affordable and a very good quality. So when you put together, you will see for the same mileage per charge, for the same quality, for the same enjoyment and the decor in one car, uh, one BYD Chinese EV can be uh, 30% cheaper than what's made in Toyota. So that's the reason why I think when they have the demand, their first choice is, is Chinese uh, EV, not the other country. Even the most famous Tesla EV is, uh, is made in China, and they've been borrowing Chinese capacity and supply chain. Mm-hmm. Professor, Moody's report highlights China's advantage in lithium-ion battery production. How significant is this advantage in shaping China's position as a global auto exporter? Oh, yes, indeed. China itself is uh, one of the uh, reserve countries in the least ore. Uh, but more than that, China has the largest refinery capacity in the lead ore. So that's made China can be a very competitive in the price to making a very good lead iron, uh, the lead metal. And then China has developed the, the big giant in the battery industry, for example, BYD, a car maker, but also one of the largest and most advantages. Uh, the battery maker in China, they're famous for their blade battery in the EV. And also the Ningda Times is also one of the uh, uh, world-renowned the battery makers. So that empowered China in the refinery, in the battery making, shipment, and everything. So I, like I mentioned, the supply chain is very, very important. As China closes in on becoming the world's largest car exporter, what strategies and policies have the car companies adopted in overseas markets? And what role have they played in propelling China's auto industry to these remarkable achievements today? Well, I don't think they have <laughs> a very strange or exclusive strategies in the uh, other countries uh, as the Chinese car makers. As far as I know, I'm very familiar with BYD and, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the uh, Weilai and also the Xiaopeng, the X-Pong. Um, They are competitive in the overseas market because, uh, like I mentioned, <laughs> they are very, very competitive in the price. Because in China, we have the advantage and efficiency in the supply chain, which allow China to make the car much cheaper with the same quality or even better quality work, much cheaper than our competitors. And also, secondly, is because we have the technology. As I mentioned, China has developed for more than 20 years or even 30 years in all the technologies. Lots of technologies are original. Japan, we have to admit that they are very powerful competitors. But they actually, in the past 10 years, they choose actually um, a detour in the technology development uh, because they choose the, the hydrocell power in the uh, renewable energies, which rely on the hydrogen power not quite the battery power. So that makes China, uh, makes Japan a bit lacking behind China, so, which also makes their newly made EV more expensive than China, and uh, the efficiency can be less. So that's the reason why I think Chinese 
uh, vehicles, EV, are more popular in overseas markets. But also, I know that uh, the BYD and X1, they have very good localization strategies. For example, they have the AI talking systems, like the theory in a car, uh, localized within the local languages. And also, they have the culture, the branding, and everything. But that, I think, is uh, you know, uh, very conventional uh, no, a comp- marketing strategy. Professor, with China's auto industry transitioning towards higher-end intelligent and green exports, uh, how do you envision the uh, future trajectory of this industry? What challenges and opportunities do you foresee for Chinese automakers as they continue to lead in this dynamic market? Oh, yes. Uh, this is actually I want to mention a little bit. Uh, a lot of people are saying, especially... <laughs> You know, uh, the gasoline vehicles, the traditional competitors in the market, they're arguing, okay, this is just cheaper, but they're less powerful. That's not like driving a car, it's like driving a toy. I think this kind of comment we have heard a lot uh, in the automobile, uh, sorry, in the smartphone market before. Remember uh, when Nokia used to rule the market and when the iPhone just came out, everybody saying, okay, this is just a, another phone with a bigger screen, just more fleshy, that's it. No, actually, later people soon understand that's a revolution. Because with smartphones, you are not having a phone which can dial you know, quicker of the telephone, but you have a whole new system. You have the live streaming, you have the online music, you have online shopping. The whole life has been changed because you changed the platform. EV is very revolutionary different platforms than the traditional gasoline vehicle. It's because they are power system and their ECU system is the same. They're using the same uh, electricity, which allows them to become another iPhone kind of the smart platform. In the future, it's going to be a mobile data center. It's going to be a mobile, you know, uh, it's going to be a mobile uh, information center, sensing center. It's going to be a uh, shopping center uh, distributed. So it's going to be changing our life. But nowadays, we're just in early stage before everybody can realize. I think um, gasoline vehicle or the diesel vehicle can be the dinosaurs in the past. In the future, when China has been leading the trend, I think a lot of other countries are going to follow. I'm sure that Japan, the powerful competitor, is going to follow. South Korea, America, they're going to follow that. And then whole rules in this uh, in this area, in this market, is going to be changed. And then we're going to see a major shift in people's lifestyle, like the iPhones, like the Huawei phones that changed our life. So that's going to be the future. Um, um, in future, uh, and I think in China, um, we're going to lead this trend, and we're going to have more apps based on the cars. We're going to have more business model based on the EV cars. And uh, you're going to see you know, many, many new things to come. Thanks, Professor, for sharing such insightful perspectives on China's journey to becoming a global automotive powerhouse. That's Professor Chu Qiang, Assistant Director of International Monetary Institute at Renmin University of China. Coming up, China unveils a three-year action plan to commercialize 90% of its counties. You're listening to Bro Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You've been listening to Road Today. The Chinese government has unveiled a comprehensive three-year action plan to bolster county-level commerce systems. The blueprint aims to bridge the urban and rural gap by establishing 500 model counties by 2025 and to realize basic commercialization for 90% of counties. The initiative spans over 20 specific tasks across seven domains, including enhancing agricultural and industrial product circulation, elevating farming incomes, and modernizing rural consumption patterns.
How will the plan further promote the integrated development of urban and rural areas in China? What fundamental changes will you bring to the rural regions? To delve into this, joining us on the line is Dr. Joe Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Uh, could you elaborate on the key components of the plan, such as the establishment of front-runner counties and the enhancement of rural commercial systems? How do these components contribute to the overall target of rural revitalization? Yes, we know that uh, the rural areas is kind of very important areas in China's economy. We also put that, I mean, beyond the economy levels. So every year, the the CPC will put the the uh, rural areas, uh, the affairs to be the number one files and documents. So for this plan, I think that it's trying to have several characteristics. The first one is that we should try to stabilize and keep the diversification of the different counties. We know that China is so big and there are so many different counties. They all have their different characteristics. So our task is not trying to reduce the diversification of the characteristics, but trying to keep them. Well, the second is we are trying to improve its abilities on producing the different products, including the agricultural products and also some of the manufacturing products. So in this regard, they can be better improve the capacity of producing. And the third one is we are trying to have better connections between the rural areas and also with the urban areas and even the international market. We know that the commercial is actually Activities are depending on the market in a large extent in the in this time. So we are trying to provide them with better abilities to 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 have what they can produce and sell them in the market to have a more profits. The plan's timeline spans from deployment this year to fully implementation in 2024 and wrapping up in 2025. What milestones and benchmarks should we look for during this period? to gauge the plan's progress and its impact on rural commerce and development. Yes, we, if you are looking at the different indicators, you may find that there are so so many different indicators. We are trying to improve the abilities of the rural areas and the quarters. I think that they be quite different because it's, especially from the government's view, we can put some money to enhance the ability of infrastructure, like for the first stage. And then with the better warehousing and the roads and also abilities of the infrastructure, the market will reflect on the, on the residual of uh, the abilities improvement. So in this regard, I think that the 500 different qualities are trying to be not a unical style of development. They should try to develop what kind of things they are good at. So we cannot just judge by the different indicators of uh, infrastructure improvement or certain kind of criteria. But on the other hand, we should try to look at the uh, improvement of the performance of the cortis. So the cortis are very important basic units of China. They are, uh, you know, the, the rural areas and they are the roots of the development. We should try to make them more sustainable. The plan also emphasizes digitizing supply chains and logistics. How digitalized is rural China today? Uh, with the implementation of the new plan, how will 2025 look like, especially at those 500 model counties? Actually, we know that China has entered the digitalization time and we are trying to improve the abilities of the of the whole society. Well, in this regard, I think that in the past several years, we have uh, we have observed many improvement from the rural areas. While the uh, e-commerce uh, e- have put it, uh, especially in the rural areas, has improved the abilities of the farmers when they are selling their products. So I think that in many years we have seen the you know the performance improvement, but compared with what we can do, there are still quite large space for us to develop. So the digitalization is not only mean that we can try to connect the different stakeholders into the same market, but also trying to improve their ability to get the knowledge. Well, for the digitalization in the rural areas, they may lie in 
two aspects. The first one is that they, uh, I, I think one of the most important is that they can sell their products through the e-commerce, the digitalization by the kind of a connection with the platforms and uh, like the ordered agriculture. And the second is they can also buy more things from the international markets. Well, that is uh, definitely important because there are so many farmers living in the rural areas. So they need to have a have opportunities to choose from the even wider farm, uh, even wider market in the world. Mm-hmm. One of the plan's objectives is to achieve basic commercialization for 90% of counties and provide express delivery access to all villages in qualified regions. What implications do these goals uh, have for the overall economic landscape and consumer experiences in rural China? We know that China is a, a very wide areas. I mean, even for the counties, they are quite different. I mean, from the sizes, from the endowment, and also the people living in those areas. So if we are trying to make better use of the resources which they are capable of, they should try to develop some of the styles of their own. Actually, I think that, you know, in the recent years, we are trying to put a better integration of the domestic market. It is means that we are trying to connect the different uh, regions into our similar one. And uh, this, this is a very difficult and complicated task because we're not only trying to uh, make it standardized by the, by the kind of methods of uh, logistics, but also trying to make the people know more about the information. Well, uh, in this regard, I think that so there are more, you know, kind of guidance for the different counties to try to improve their abilities connected to the market. Well, on the other hand, we know that the counties are the basic units of China. So they are a combination of the different departments, including the, the commercial departments in this county, but also they need to do some more planning about uh, the industrials, manufacturing, planning, and also agricultures. So they can try to integrate these functions into our very uh, improvement and integrated package. We can try to improve that. So it's a, it's a kind of a, so many possibilities for us to look at the landscape. But I have to say that uh, because that nowadays there are so many differences between the uh, eastern and the middle and the western part of China. We are trying to put more, you know, the different uh, efforts in different regions. For the coastal areas, they may need to be more stabilized abilities according to the uncertainty in the foreign market, in the international market. Well, for the central and the western part of China, they are they are trying to improve their abilities to be involved in the globalization, in the decision-making process about the market. So it's quite different. And we are, we are looking, we, are, we are surely want to have more experiences from different regions and benefit others in a similar situation. Dr. Zhou, could you please elaborate more on how these strategies will impact local economies and consumers because the plan highlights the importance of boosting rural consumption, right? Yeah, it, you know, uh, this kind of ideas for the county economies is not just uh, put out right recently. It has been put forward at least for several years. I think that in the past several years, we have uh, found that uh, these policies are functioning and uh, maybe it's not that easy because we we do not have such a large fiscal resources so in this regard i think that one of the abilities like for for example we are trying to improve the consumption abilities in the local counties by the consumption of the e-vehicles as you just you know discussed before so we know that for the e-vehicles the rural areas they really want to have more but how can we provide them with the charging port and also the infrastructure like the roads so there are so many problems we need to deal with so maybe in the past we are trying to give some of the ideas a uh, concept for the local communities to to do but while in the in the coming future we are trying to support them with the better abilities to consume these kind of new things well on the other hand there are still many traditional areas for the consumption to stabilize and improve so we can try to address these problems also to benefit the consumers in the rural areas around china Future. Thanks, Dr. Zhou, for shedding light on the China's three-year plan to enhance rural commerce. That's Dr. Zhou Mi, senior researcher.
fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. More to come, Argentina is facing mounting pressure to devalue its currency after a shock primary election result. Stay tuned to World Today for more thought-provoking discussions and updates on evolving stories. Welcome back to Road Today with me, Anna, in Beijing. Argentina is facing mounting pressure to devalue its currency again, as the government struggles to avoid economic collapse after a shock primary election result. Far-right candidate Javier Milei won the most votes, which analysts say will add to the Latin American country's economic and political instability. Joe Richards had this report. A historic political shift in Argentina. Far-right libertarian Javier Milei took around 30% of the vote in Sunday's presidential primaries. This turns October's election into a tight three-way race. Not only have we won individually, but we were also the most voted party because we are the true opposition. We're the only ones who want a real change. He has been compared to Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro. Millet has captured votes on a promise to overhaul politics in Argentina with radical reform. To end the country's triple-digit inflation, he promises to dollarize the economy. He also wants to legalize handgun ownership and says climate change is a lie. At the headquarters for the Conservative Alliance Together for Change, activists greeted candidate Patricia Burrich, chanting Presidente. We have the opportunity to lead a profound change for Argentina, she said. Bullrich, the former security minister in Argentina, had hoped for a stronger showing in these primaries, but her coalition still finished in second place. The government candidate, economy minister Sergio Massa, also formed a coalition that finished third overall. Yet the political and economic outlook in Latin America's third largest economy has been transformed by Millet's success. The results of the presidential primaries have had an immediate impact on Argentina's economy. On Monday morning, the central bank announced a devaluation of the peso of around 20%. That devaluation is now expected to accelerate the country's 116% inflation rate, with Sunday's primary results creating even greater economic and political uncertainty in the run-up to the October the 22nd election. That was Joe Richards reporting on the aftermath of Argentina's primary election. For more on this, joining us on the line is Professor Jiang Shixue, Director of the Center for Latin American Studies. Thanks for joining us, Professor Jiang. Okay, thank you. Professor, were you personally surprised by the strong showing of candidates like Javier Millet? How do these results align or differ from your expectations based on the economic conditions and political climate in Argentina? Well, I think I should say yes and no for your, uh, for your question. Well, I believe that uh, this time Argentina will turn right. That is to say the rightist uh, candidate uh, might uh, do a good job because uh, in the in the past uh, several years, economy in Argentina is in a terrible shape. Uh, but I didn't expect that uh, Mr. Milan has done so so good, and he has he is, he is now in in the first place. Uh, but you know, he is the Trump of Argentina, so it's really quite a surprising uh, for me that. Uh, uh, a Trump uh, uh, of, of uh, uh, Argentina has done such a good job. But, well, who knows? Uh, there will be the uh, uh, two, uh, two months uh, or one and a half months to go. So uh, who knows what will happen in the, in the next uh, uh, 50 days. 
Professor, but how do you look at his unconventional policy proposals, including adopting the U.S. dollar, eliminating the central bank, and deregulating firearm sales, which have resonated with a significant portion of the voters? What socioeconomic factors do you believe have contributed to voters' shift towards a candidate with a far-right economic stance? Well, first of all, I must.、Uh Said that uh, uh, Mr. Millet is very、uh, is very clever. He knows the voters、uh, wish to see、uh, see changes. You know the economy is really uh, uh, in a terrible shape, as I mentioned just now. Inflation is very high, more than 100. Unemployment, poverty, all kinds of things. So people in Argentina just want to see changes. So Mr. Millay uh, uh, can uh, can uh, put forward all kinds of、uh, all kinds of radical proposals, polarization, all kinds of things, as you mentioned just now. So in a in a in a terrible、uh, situation like、uh, what we have seen in、uh, in Argentina, so I think a political uh, candidate, poli- uh, particularly these are.、Uh, Far right candidate can put forward many kinds of strange proposals, but who knows what will happen?、Uh, I hope、uh, the voters、uh, will will determine who they wish to see,、uh, who can be their president. But professor, whether Argentina really needs such、uh, radical policies, what could be the short-term and long-term consequences of implementing such radical economic and social changes, especially in a country grappling with economic challenges today? Well, it's really hard to say.、Uh, first of all, I was point out that uh, uh, Argentina needs to deal with one big problem: inflation. Okay, so in order to deal with this kind of problem, well, dollar、uh, dollarization might be a solution. Okay, uh, uh, more than twenty、uh, years ago, that was two thousand one, when Argentina was in a uh, serious uh, financial crisis. Some econ、uh, some economists、uh, proposed that there would be dollar uh, uh, dollarization uh, for Argentina. Uh, now, well, I I would say if really Mr. Milay can can be president of Argentina, well, probably probably there will be some kind of a dollarization to deal with this uh, uh, serious problem of high uh, uh, inflation. Uh, apart from this kind of proposal, for other suggestions or other. Campaign、uh, promises. I don't think、uh, they will work for Argentina.、Mm-hmm. Professor, do you think the rise of candidates like Mille suggests a growing popularity of right-turning ideologies in Argentina? How does such trend fit into a turning left、uh, Latin America, as many experts said? Well, in the past,、uh, Argentina、uh, used to be a country which was.、Uh, Considered as something like、uh, on the left, but、uh, starting with ten、uh, years ago, because of the economy, the voters choose a rightist candidate, uh, and uh, now so because of the,、uh, the terrible economic situation, the voters might、uh, might choose Milay again. Well, in Latin America, or as well as in some other parts of the world. If the economy is in trouble and the voters wish to see changes, then some kind of a strange political、uh, candidates or, or, or I would say, stranger politicians、uh, would love to attract the voters. So this is quite common in Latin America as well as in Europe. Thanks, Professor, for your insightful opinion on the complex interplay of politics and economics in Argentina. That's Professor Jiang Shixue, director of the Center for Latin American Studies.
The United Nations warns that over one million people have fled Sudan as the dire humanitarian crisis unfolds after four months of war. The ongoing conflict between the army and the paramilitary group Rapid Support Forces has displaced more than three million others internally. The UN alerts that the situation is spiraling out of control, leading to scarcity of food and medical supplies. The agency also knows. Reports of sexual assaults in the country have increased by 50 percent. So, for more on the crisis and the conflict, joining us on the line is Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Wang. My pleasure.、Uh, can you provide insights into the root causes of the conflict in Sudan, including the underlying factors? That have led to the tensions between the army and rapid support forces. Well, the Sudan crisis that、uh, now has entered,、uh, I think, the,、uh, has already entered for several months. And although that you mentioned that the international uh, uh, international mediation, international efforts has already been involved, that there was still、uh, the, the war and internal war, internal conflict still continues. The very deeply rooted causes for this round of the, the, the conflict inside Sudan, I think that could be attributed to several factors, several levels of the factors.、Uh, first of all, if we're talking about the very historical factors, because Sudan uh, uh, was a country and still the country that is harassed, that is uh, uh, troubled by a lot of internal problems, such as the internal political factions, the internal、uh, economic difficulties, especially. When the South Sudan was established、uh, nearly ten years ago,、uh, a lot of the, the very traditional energy revenues has been cut because uh, uh, traditionally that the South Southern Sudan was、uh, the, the, the oil and energy producing area, where the Northern Sudan is the exporting area. So now they, 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 both of them face a very、uh, severe economic difficulties. And meanwhile, international assistance, especially the,、uh, the, the assistance from the Arab, other Arab states. Uh, has uh, very uh, largely uh, limited during the past year, so that further led to the further economic difficulties. And meanwhile, if we look at internal problems, internal factions, especially the, the, the factions, the, 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 the divisions from the,、uh, the Sudanese armed forces, we call it the regular forces, as well as the,、uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the rapid support forces. Uh, they actually they are the different, but、uh, although they are the different、uh, military forces, but their、uh, capabilities go hand in hand. I mean, nobody has enjoyed the,、uh, the very very stronger possession against each other. So that's led to further problem. Who should have louder voice? So in the transfer in the trans. Uh, formation on the transitional area that erupted during two years ago,、uh, when the, the military organization, the military forces, they worked together, hoped to push forward a new、uh, political manner and structure into、uh, Sudan. Now the frictions and divisions emerged, so that is why the two factions now blame each other. Two factions that fought with、uh, fighting each other. So I think a lot of factors can be attributed to、uh, can be con-、uh, can be concluded. And included into the, the explanation of the outbreak and the prolonging of the, this round of the crisis inside Sudan. Professor, could you please tell us more about this setting of those two, the, the direct army and the rapid support forces, the involvement of the RSF and their perceived ambitions to seize power, raise questions about the role of paramilitary groups in Sudan's governance. How do these groups factor into the larger political landscape? Well, well the, 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 the rapid support forces.、Uh, Uh, it's of course the paramilitary forces, but but actually this it it has about 100,000 uh, personnel and maybe more, and they have a network across the Sudan the whole country, uh, and uh, its history could be、uh, could be traced back to、uh, Sudan's government efforts、uh, and military campaigns. In Darfur, as well as in the south in Sudan, because、uh, there were two, a lot of ex- different explanations about the, the, the birth and the growth of this rapid support forces.、Uh, because、uh, on the one hand, many believed that it,、uh, this force would grow up because that、uh, the, 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 now the, the, the leader has already gone, the, the Bashir,、uh, the Bashir. That he was the leader of,、uh, he was the president of、uh, Sudan. That Bashir、uh, uh, 
was afraid that the stronger forces of the military forces, the regular military forces, could be a threat for him. So that he hopes to establish another military structure, that is the rapid support forces, uh, to, uh, to, to, to balance the, the relations between the two military factions so he could maintain his own power. And on the other hand, some another kind of the voice believed that uh, uh, this is just the growth of the different uh, political establishment because the regular forces are under the command of the uh, defense, defense ministry, while the, the rapid support forces are under the command of the uh, intelligence establishment. So actually, they are the powers grows out of different uh, political establishment, political system. So then, uh, to, uh, uh, both of them now become the kind of the very important political power and military power inside Sudan. Uh, so rapid forces, rapid support forces. Again, once it it had it worked in uh, in Darfur and southern Sudan, but then it's rapidly grow and it included many many more uh, the militias. From the paramilitary forces, and it, now it's become the, the national uh, military network all across Sudan, and now it, it has the capabilities to co- to to compete with uh, to compete with the regular army for the uh, highest power all, all across the Sudan. So that is that is the, the brief history of how the two uh, military factions now they, they they compete with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UN has highlighted the dire humanitarian situation in Sudan, with a significant number of people fleeing the country and others facing food shortages and a lack of medical care. What are the major obstacles hindering the delivery of humanitarian aid? Uh, there were several uh, obstacles. First of all, there was the, the, the humanitarian assistance actually to Sudan is not is far from enough. Uh, although a lot of countries has already expressed their willingness and the concerns, but uh, the economic and uh, humanitarian goods transferred to Sudan is far from enough. They would, it should be more. Uh, second, uh, once these countries uh, have already transferred their, their uh, humanitarian uh, uh, goods to Sudan, uh, how to bring these uh, goods into the Sudan, into Sudan's border safely is another problem because we know that the fighting is still going on, especially in many of the key cities and the key towns uh, all across the Sudan, especially many of them across the border. So how could the international organizations, especially the United Nations, uh, they could, how could they bring this uh, humanitarian assistance into Sudan is a very big problem. And meanwhile, I'll do that some of the, the, the deliveries could successfully be made in, inside Sudan. But how can we make sure that these goods could be given to the people that are highly needed? Because uh, given that a uh, lot of streets in the cities, a lot of the big cities and a lot of the key cities and towns are still under the fire uh, between the different uh, factions, the military, uh, Sudan regular forces and uh, Sudan rapid support forces, how could we say that, uh, okay, the, 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 the goods, the humanitarian goods could be given to the hands of the people that who are, that who are uh, highly needed? So it's, there were still a lot of problems without the safe and the peaceful and stable order inside Sudan, the humanitarian uh, goods are not, will not be easily to go to the hands of the people who are, di- who are in the dire need. Mm-hmm. Professor, very briefly, how do you see the path forward for the nation and what key stakeholders need to be involved in finding a sustainable resolution to the crisis? I think, let's be, free, I, uh, let's be brief, I think we need a new framework, a new framework, because right now the problem is that although the international efforts are there, but the international efforts and the mediation are uh, sputtered, and the different countries have different plans, different countries have different voices, how could we unite them together? And meanwhile, inside Sudan, the, the, the actually the two factions, the, the Sudanese regular, regular forces and the Sudanese support forces, they blame each other as the illegal one. So how could they bring them together, melt down their divisions, will be the critical question for the future. Thanks, Dr. Wang, for your insights and expertise on the complex situation in Sudan. That's Dr. Wang Jing, Associate Professor at Northwestern University in Xi'an, China.
China's summer railway transportation is expected to surpass the pre-pandemic level. China State Railway Group says 760 million trips are expected to be made during the country's two-month summer travel rush, which ends in about two weeks. That's up more than 3% of the figure recorded in the same period in 2019. The railway sector has arranged more than 10,000 passenger trains every day during the summer holiday rush, up nearly one-fifth compared with the pre-pandemic level recorded four years ago. For more on this, my colleague Xu Wen spoke with Professor Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Professor Liu, could you help us understand China's summer travel rush? So what's the main driving force behind the surge in travel? I think the main factor that uh, stimulating the traveling uh, enthusiasm in China is the confidence is coming back. Because as we know, China already that, uh, experienced a three-year pandemic. And during the three years, that uh, people that uh, couldn't have enough time and the chances to go abroad and uh, go domestic market. But nowadays, that they have more time and effort that to do some more traveling. So this is the very logical situation in China. We see that there's no bigger surprise for us to understand this. Confidence is coming back as the main reason. And also economic situations are getting better than people expected. That's why people have already saved a lot of time and money and they spend it during the holiday, not only the uh, spring festival and the Labor Day festival, but nowadays they have also summer uh, holidays. So this is a very uh, important sign that, that the China's economy is uh, really on the way to recovery. Actually, we have noticed that since mid-August, railway passenger travel demand has been on the rise. An average of 10,500 passenger trains were operated per day on national railways, marking a 19% increase over the same period in 2019. So how has the country's railway system prepared to handle this surge in demand? I think in two ways China has going to undertake the measures to handle such a challenges. First, I think that China has the travel system is very sound and very healthy. In the past 40 years, the travelers always have mixed surprising every year, year on year, especially when during the three-year pandemic, the people didn't have time to go abroad. Nowadays, they have more time and enthusiasm to go that this railway and the traveler agencies that they have more experience together all these efforts and uh, from institutional and organizational to make this uh, problem to be solved. And uh, secondly, also, as we know that uh, people in China are very eager to have more cooperative uh, together. Even if you have a problem or challenges, we can support you from everywhere. That is as a unified policy to support the unified the market. So we can see the travelers hide and um, have a lot of uh, demand for labor force or additional force to help this uh, industry. I think the unified market plays a very important role to solve these uh, challenges. Well, speaking of the summer travel rush, we have to pay attention to the uh, travel service providers. For example, online travel agency Lumama reports that bookings for study trips during the summer holiday have already surpassed those for the same period in 2019. And also, like since July, hotel bookings for parent-child tours have surged by 150% compared to the same period in 2019. So how could the tourism sector's recovery accelerate the country's economic growth? I think this uh, sign can be a real driving force to accelerate the economic development. As we know, the travelers uh, and the making accommodation and also they pay a lot of uh, caterings and insurance in, and in different areas. So that's why they, they make a, a lot of uh, spending and expenditures that expected. That could really make the supply chain under pressure. This can, as I understand my 
And people, my friends in southern part of China, even in Jiangsu province, they have to work out uh, 24 hours to produce the goods and the products to meet the demand in the tourist industry, for instance, caterings and stuff for hotel facilities and accommodation facilities. So in this way, that really a booster driving force to accelerate the economic recovery as a whole. Well, have you noticed that um, something new in this year's summer travel rush is parent-child tours? This sector have boosted the business performance of hotels and restaurants. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I actually, that I found many things that are quite interesting attract me that to see more advantages and experiencing new experiencing in the new traveler. For instance, the digitalization and the low carbon emission travelers that made the people that in different styles. Before years, that the people. Only easy to be satisfied with enough for catering the food or something like this. But nowadays, there are more or less in more high-level quality uh, consumption, especially for digitalization. And when they have the more convenient and comfortable payment, that make this travelers more easy and more comfortable. This made the people that to be satisfied. And also, this is another way that to boost the information industry and the digitalization industry and all equipment related that as a whole that they can push and stimulate the whole industry to be further developed in the right way. And lastly, Professor, China has identified tourism as a key sector for stimulating and expanding domestic consumption. In a 20-point plan unveiled last month to boost the consumer spending, the country's economic planner committed to introducing favorable measures for cultural and tourism consumption. So could you share with us some of the supportive policies that the country has implemented? And also, should we anticipate further growth in the tourism sector? As I understand, there is some difference. The provinces and the cities, they worked out a different supportive policy to stimulate and to support the local travelers. For instance, they gave more time and efforts for the organization and the institutions to give more support in the industry of tourism. And secondly, they made more price in favor of the holiday for Russia to abroad and also welcomed the new tourists to the local efforts. So in this way, from both sides, that they can stimulate all this spending and expenditure in Sudan abroad and also in domestic. But many domestic, they also try to make the travelers and the people that to experience localization. There's new industrialization, China's modernization, in the right way to understand the major policy, how to support China's modernization as a whole effort of the whole nation. So in this way that we can see cultural exchanges and also from the museum. Yesterday I went to a hotel in the museum that is full of a lot of people and the students, younger and also elderly people that they were experiencing their rich cultural heritage. So locally, the supportive policies are the major driving sector to support and to safeguard the tourist industry. That was Professor Liu Jiting, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with me, Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.